Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. This edition of the ER is brought to you by HSBC. Winner of Trade Finance America's 2016 Company Award for Best Supply Chain Finance Bank in North America. HSBC, where ambition connects with opportunity. There, there is a very long list of potential horribles that any, anybody who's going to be uh, coming into the Oval Office has to be very cognizant of. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in New York today with a new guest who I'm pleased to welcome to the show, Max Boot. Max is the Jean J. Kirkpatrick Senior Fellow for National Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and the author of numerous books, his latest being Invisible Armies, an epic history of guerrilla warfare from ancient times to the present. And joining us from Washington is Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution where she focuses on military history. Also in Washington, our own Keith Johnson, FP's Deputy Managing Editor for News. We love the feedback we're getting and podcast ideas from all of you nerds out there listening to us. Keep them coming, and maybe you'll be one of the lucky souls to receive a coveted ER mug. For those of you who send us tweets saying you're not actually nerds, stop listening. This is a show for foreign policy (laughs) nerds only. We're at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, and by the way, if you don't think you're a nerd, spend some time reflecting. Everybody has an inner nerd. <laughs> Get in touch with your inner nerd. That's what this show is about, getting in touch with your inner Absolutely, nerd. Absolutely, David. Right, Corey? Absolutely, exactly. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, and from Midtown New York, we had the following conversation. And we're going to have a conversation that's kind of unusual for this, the period right before an election. I don't really want to talk about the election. I want to talk about what we've been missing by focusing on the election. For those of us who are looking at the world, certainly a lot has been going on. And for those who have been running for higher office or who are sort of working the back rooms of Washington right now, trying to make sure that they've got the plum job they've been seeking their entire careers, there's going to be a lot that they're going to have to deal with once they get into those plush U.S. government offices. Corey, what is the the biggest worry that you would have if you were planning um, to advise, say, Hillary Clinton on and I'm going to assume that the next president is Hillary Clinton because, frankly, I can't get my brain around the other possibility. If you were advising, you know, saying we've really got to be prepared on our first day in office to deal with X, what's X? Uh, the potential for a crisis and military conflict with Russia, I think. I actually, I'm 
I don't mean to be alarmist, but I actually think that sounds pretty bad. Russia. <laughs> I mean, you don't mean to be alarmist, but a potential for military conflict with the world's only other major nuclear power is pretty grim. It it does sound a little now that you say it that way, David. I I'm quite sincere about it, though. I actually think. Russia has been over the last at least six years and probably longer moving in very negative directions. It defines itself in opposition to our interests. It is taking the opportunity to humiliate uh, the Obama administration at every opportunity it can. It's Uh, engaging in extraordinarily risky military maneuvers in close proximity of American forces and other NATO forces. The war crimes it is committing in Syria, it's completely unapologetic about. I think the potential for an incident that in which we and the Russians are drawn into conflict, either directly or with us defending one of our allies, which we by all means should do in a conflict with Russia, and the Russians finding no off-ramp because they don't want an off-ramp is actually something I, I think this president ought to be worrying about every day. And I think the next president ought to be coming up with a strategy for managing the Russians communicating very clearly uh, what we will do in different circumstances, not giving them a vote over our actions in those circumstances, but making absolutely clear they understand what we are going to do in different circumstances is essential for preventing an incident, which I expect to happen, to escalate into a military conflict with the Russians. Max, Corey is normally... Cool. I know I'm little Miss Sunshine. She is cheerful. She's 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 cool, calm, and collected. Is she being alarmist here? No, I mean I think that's a legitimate worry. It's certainly not the only one that I have about the state of the world the next president will inherit. I mean, Russia is far from the only power that we could easily be embroiled in a war with. I mean, look at Iran, for example. We just had an incident. We had several incidents, in fact off the coast of Yemen, uh, where you had anti-ship cruise missiles being fired at American destroyers, uh, supposedly by the Houthis, the Iranian proxy militia in Yemen, but they had to have been provided by the Iranians. They may well have been operated by the Iranians. We don't know the full facts, but certainly that is a that could be viewed as an act of war, and it, it may not be the last one. Uh, so there is plenty of potential conflict uh, with Iran, as well as, of course, uh, China, which is being increasingly assertive and aggressive in the South China Sea, and lest we forget uh, the most pressing threat in many ways that we face, which is terrorism. And even though we are making headway against the Islamic State in Mosul and elsewhere, it remains an extraordinarily dangerous organization which may uh, focus its energy uh, outside of Iraq and Syria, even as it's losing ground in Iraq and Syria. And they're far from alone. Al-Qaeda is still a huge threat. There are lots of terrorists out there who are bent on doing us harm. And the odds are that sooner or later, we're going to see more attacks uh, on along the lines of those in Paris or San Bernardino, Orlando, or even worse. Uh, so there is no, there there is a very long list of potential horribles that any anybody who's going to be uh, coming into the Oval Office has to be very cognizant of. 
Keith, you are, you know, helping to manage the vast network of FP reporters and sources that are out there spread across the world. What are what are you hearing on this list of, if not horribles, at least kind of priorities that need to be taken into consideration by a president, a defense secretary, a national security advisor, the national security team of the next president? You know, there's an entire list of things, and, and you guys have already mentioned a few. Max went down three of the big ones. Um, Corey got to Russia, which is at the top of the list. Venezuela should be near the top of the list, given its proximity, given the uh, disintegration, both political, societal, economic, that's going on there. That's going to be something that uh, even perhaps in the immediate post-election period is going to be at the top of the issue. But the one thing that I wanted to flag that hasn't come up at any of the three debates um, and has really been the the elephant that never made it into the room this year is climate change. And I, I guess I'm here as the, the resident tree hugger on this one. Um, but the main thing from the national security community's point of view, the main point about climate change is that it's an accelerant or an, uh, uh, an exacerbator of all the other bad crap that's happening around the world. Now, whether that has to do with the, the origins of the Syrian civil war or agriculture in the Sahel, the loss of the West Art, uh, Antarctic ice sheet, um, you know, the, the, the massive warming that's taking place in the Arctic, uh, the flooding that we saw uh, in, in North Carolina, all of the things that are already bad are going to be getting worse and they're already getting worse in real time, which strains your ability to respond. It strains the local people's ability to respond. It puts stress on water, food, medicine, you name it. And so that I would actually put at the top because it's overarching and it affects all of these other issues. I mean, Russia's activities in the Arctic to a small degree are possible because it's easier to operate in the Arctic. You know, there's, there's situations in terms of the, the once-in-a-millennium drought that we're looking at in the Middle East, which has, in a lot of cases, affected internal migration and internal dynamics in places like Syria. So that I would put at the top of the list. So we have a list here, Russia, Iran, China, terrorism, Venezuela, and climate change. Corey, you were going to bring up North Korea, weren't you? <laughs> Why, yes, David. I was actually David. thinking about North Korea was in my head as we were speaking. I was like, no, we forgot one. Why, yes, David. In the category of uh, small but dangerous states behaving badly, uh, North Korea is top of the list. And they seem to be wanting attention because the number of missile tests that they have attempted in the last several months is a huge acceleration. And the fact that the missile tests aren't successful doesn't mean they're not learning from them. The ability to mate their nuclear weapons to missiles that can hit the United States is something, if they don't already have the ability, they're fast going to be there. And, and that regime is so unpredictable in its behavior. It may be acting strategically, but it is still unpredictable in its behavior towards South Korea, towards Japan, and towards us. Okay, so we've got a working list here. I'm going to come back later and try to expand upon the list. But what I want to do now is I want to go down the list that we had, and I want to develop each one of these things briefly a little further by saying, what's the scenario that's likely to flare up in the first couple of months of a new presidency, or perhaps before the new presidency, but overlapping into the new presidency, that most concerns you in these areas. I'd like to keep it kind of crisp so we can go through each one of these. And I want to turn back to you, Corey, and start with Russia. 
so the scenario would be um, a Russian airplane operating in close proximity to a NATO ship in the Baltic Sea clips a wing and crashes. The Russians claim we shot it down. Uh, and they begin to be much more aggressive in close proximity of U.S. and other NATO fleets. There is an accident. The Russians then uh, start threatening uh, Lithuania, and, and we move forces into Lithuania to defend it. And the Russians down all the computer systems, including the electrical grid in Lithuania, uh, and we choose to respond with a corresponding cyber attack that the Russians claim is an act of war and target an American military base or an American military vessel somewhere in Europe. Okay, very quickly. Keith, in that scenario, at what point is all of your retirement funds wiped out by the stock market collapse? Yeah, I mean, this is the the other point. When you already have uh, you know planes going down and things like that, then then what I was talking about, climate change, starts to fade into the background. But uh, as well as my retirement savings, which is already well in the background. Um, Fortunately, <laughs> FP's retirement program is so enormously it's, generous. Oh, yeah. the, you'll be down. You'll be down there in FP Acres, you know, in Belize <laughs> on the beach, where we we have our own private island for people like I'll you. I'll hold you to that. Yeah. No, what I would say, though, is that there are some scenarios even beyond the, the sort of overarching one that I worried about that concern me in, in Asia Pacific, which is the U.S. treaty obligations. No, no, I want to come back. To, let's, okay. let's come back. I, I want to stick to Russia scenarios right now. We'll come back to Asia Pacific. I would actually say on Russia scenarios, I think the, the, the more likely one than the one that Corey described, which is a possibility, but I think the more likely one would be for something to happen in Syria because – Hillary Clinton has said she wants to enforce a no-fly zone over Syria, and obviously it's not only Assad's aircraft that are flying over Syria, it's also Putin's aircraft. And so there is a real danger of miscalculation in, in that policy, although I, will, I favor that policy. I think it's the right policy to do, but it has to be managed carefully because there is a, a risk of shooting down a Russian aircraft or something you know, flaring out of control. Okay. Does that same kind of scenario or the or the Houthi scenario, is that the one you're most worried with with regard to Iran? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's, with the Iranians, there are certainly multiple points of, of conflict, uh, you know, given how active they are in Iraq and Syria, both places where we have U.S. forces operating, and given the continuing tensions around the Persian Gulf, where for years... Uh, the U.S. Navy and the IRGC Navy have been at daggers drawn, uh, waiting for something to happen. And again, there's a real risk of, of conflict there. I mean, why would the Houthis be firing you know, missiles at a U.S. Navy ship? It, at some level, it doesn't make sense. But this is the kind of aggressive behavior we have come to expect from Iran. And it could well be something that the, that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps decides to do to escalate tensions. And you know, I think we, we are obligated to respond to that because we can't just let these kinds of attacks go by. Otherwise, we're going to be chased out of the Persian Gulf and chased out of the region. So I think the, the one thing I will say about Iran is it's a less scary scenario at the moment because, mercifully, they don't actually have nukes yet. If they had nukes, then it would be a nightmare scenario, just as it is in the case of Russia or North Korea. Uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, I think we can, you know, Iran presents f far lower 
uh, military risks in a confrontation with the United States, but those risks are nevertheless real, especially if the Iranians activate their terrorist networks. Hezbollah uh, has a lot of uh, infrastructure for conducting terrorism. So th there, there, there is a real danger there, but it's not the danger of World War III, which is uh, not to be apocalyptic, but that is the danger with Russia. Well, that is a danger with Russia, although I think there is some evidence to suggest that countries that have massive nuclear capabilities don't want to use them for a variety of reasons. Right. And so conventional warfare seems more likely. And in the case of Iran, if the United States were to get into even a small shooting war with Iran, it certainly poses complications in places like Iraq, where the Iranians have enormous control over the government, in Syria, where the Iranians and the Russians are allied and may be working together, uh, Bahrain, where the Iranians have uh, you know, an agenda uh, and elsewhere, elsewhere in the region. And so you could see that um, sort of recast an already tumultuous region in a, in, a, in a darker way, right? Of course. And also, lest we forget, Hezbollah probably has something like over 100,000 missiles and rockets in Lebanon aimed primarily at Israel. So Israel is certainly on the firing line in any kind of conflict involving Iran. I mean, I will say in terms of Putin, uh, he, is a, he is a very bad guy and a very dangerous guy. But I think at the end of the day, he's essentially opportunistic and calculating, and he doesn't want to get into war with us any more than we want to get into war with him. I mean, his pattern is he pushes ahead where he sees no resistance, but when he sees resistance, he pulls back. I agree uh, the with Iranians that are, are a little bit different because uh, although they are also strategically calculating, there's also an element of ideological fanaticism behind their regime, which is absent in the case of Putin. So the Iranians are in, in, in some ways uh, even a little more scary. Although both have been very pragmatic and calculating in where they have poked and prodded. Uh, interesting, you bring up Israel and Palestine, and I'll come back to a second, or Israel and, and the broader conflict in the region, I'll come back in a second, but uh, kind of interesting that we've gone through a list like this and that's not at the top of it. And now we'll take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This edition of the ER is brought to you by HSBC. With HSBC, you have up-to-the-minute visibility and control of your global cash positions, so your business can move at the speed of opportunity. HSBC, where ambition connects with opportunity. Keith, when uh, we were talking earlier about Russia, you started talking about Pacific Treaty obligations. The third hotspot on our list was China, which was a reference both to the South China Sea and the East China Sea, what, what do you think the, the, the scenario for a problem there might be like? Well, we do have treaty obligations in both the East and the South China Sea, one on, with Japan and one with the Philippines. Now, with the Philippines, it's a little bit of a wild card with their new president, <laughs> who is uh, the gift that keeps on giving for... Well, for, but he's, he's heard, for, literally heard from God yesterday. As yes, far as I know, he's right. the only leader of a country on earth that was communicating with heaven in the past 24 hours. Right. And he, he did <laughs> well, get marching Well, I suppose orders. maybe the Pope was doing it also, but... but but, but you know that I was Ayatollah Khamenei as well. I would suspect. Well, okay, so it's a very select is, group. Very select, exactly. <laughs> um, so it's very difficult to see at this point. I mean, when you when you listen to the to the to the statements of uh, you know Perfecto Yasai or the or the Philippine Defense Minister um, and, and also U.S. officials, it seems like at any level below the presidential level. The relationship is still relatively stable and all uh, accords are still on the table. Um, but so there is a wild card there. On paper right now, 
we still have the obligation to come to the defense of the Philippines if any of their territory, including some disputed isles, um, become embroiled in a fight. Ditto. Well, that's an interesting thing, by the way. That right. is an interesting thing, which we should just footnote here, right? We have a treaty obligation to defend a country that is run by a raving lunatic. Yes. So that that, that is a kind of a concern, I would say. Right. So this is why I say as a scenario, because you have on the one hand uh, with Japan, we have the same mutual defense treaty uh, that has a nationalistic government, which has been fairly aggressive, both in rearming and in taking a more aggressive posture towards its defense obligations, and has been willing to go toe-to-toe with China on the Sinkakus or Dayayu dispute. Um, We could get drug into that fight. That's not a far-fetched scenario, and that could be a shooting war. And similarly, although with Duterte in the Philippines, you never know, but six, 12 months ago, you could have envisioned a scenario where Chinese forces were doing something blatantly illegal at Scarborough Shoal, which led to bloodshed, which led to an invocation, at least on the Philippine end of the treaty. So those are reasons where allies could get you into trouble when you have an expansionist, very aggressive China, I think. Now, by the way, for our foreign listeners for whom English is a second language, the the verb drug, as we could get drug into that conflict, uh, I think is directly related to Keith's time at the University of Georgia. Would yes. I be correct? It's it's a Southern thing and it's a UGA thing. So, <laughs> As, but look, at least at least it's not. Thanks um, for translating. Yeah, no no worries. <laughs> I, just, I, I like to, I like to help, but it's a little bit like the old um, you know Dizzy Dean used to talk about people who slud into second base. So I like to keep, <laughs> the, keep the tradition alive. Yeah, it's the sub Mason Dixon line plue perfect or something like that. Diversity is a virtue. It's not David. related. It's not related to Gary Johnson's favorite recreational life. Activity. Of course not. What is what is that? Which I'm a little afraid to ask. <laughs> that would be uh, inhaling. Yeah, yeah. No, no, not with Keith. Keith, certainly oh no, not. Keith inhales. Do you inhale anymore, Keith? Oxygen, almost every day. <laughs> almost, almost every day. Terrorism scenarios seem kind of straightforward. There's a lot of them. Is there is is there one of them, Max, that you're especially concerned about over the next few uh, months? Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the ultimate scenario, the apocalyptic scenario, but the one you got to keep in mind is, of course, the marriage of terrorism and weapons of mass destruction. I mean, that is not a high probability event, but it is a catastrophic event if it occurs. So that's why I think we have to be very concerned about states like Iran acquiring nuclear weapons. We also have to be very concerned about what happens with Pakistan's nuclear weapons, because that is a state that is... Uh, by by any measure being increasingly radicalized and being permeated by radical Islamist ideology, and they have quite a sizable nuclear arsenal. We also need to be worried about North Korea and what they do with their nuclear weapons because they certainly have a history of selling uh, nuclear and uh, missile technology uh, for profit to uh, to maintain their regime. So, you know, that's 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 the worst nightmare scenario. But just because it's a nightmare, just because it's unthinkable, doesn't mean it can't happen. I mean, we saw 9-11 that sometimes worst-case scenarios actually come true. Short of that, I think what you're looking at is, you know, probably more scenarios on the level of a Paris or an Orlando, uh, which are, you know, lower than the 9-11 type attacks, but still very serious, where you could have dozens or even hundreds of people being killed uh, because there are so many soft targets across the United States and across the Western world where it's still uh, very possible uh, for for terrorists to strike. Corey, is there a scenario where, you know, you're uh, 
an ISIS leader or a terrorist leader and you want to test something about Hillary Clinton? I mean, I think one of the things that people talk about, you know, is, 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 is a little bit what Joe Biden talked about a long time ago when he was running against Barack Obama, which is the desire of foreign leaders to, to test new American presidents. Do you, do you see that as a scenario in this particular case or are terrorists sort of off that cycle and that's more in the vein of Putin, China and North Korea? actually don't see that as a risk this election cycle because she is running I I hope it will be the case as Max suggests that she actually takes policies in line with what she is arguing on Syria and and an, a more muscular more interventionist approach to shaping the international order than President Obama has taken. And if that's true, I think that makes her an unlikely candidate for those kinds of tests because she is running to the more hawkish side. Um, so so whereas if she, if she were arguing the United States uh, can afford to withdraw, I think it more likely than that the Biden-esque kind of test would be there. But as I'm talking myself through this, I can see a show her that the cost of an interventionist policy is something Americans won't pay might be a temptation for terrorists. See, folks, that's why this podcast is different from your normal radio shows or television analysis, where people speak first and think later. We speak first. <laughs> we speak first, and then we think shortly thereafter. So it's it's. Okay, wait a minute. Why well, am I not? Well, at least hopefully we think at some point, which would differentiate us from getting... one of the major presidential candidates. <laughs> why am yes. I not be, getting credit for being open to David's subliminal suggestion that this was a possibility to be considered? I give you complete credit. <laughs> complete credit. <laughs> Keith, you brought up Venezuela. Clearly, that's a very volatile situation. Um, what could happen? Uh, well, here's, a, here's the thing. You've got a, a country that has had now, what, 20-something years of narco-state socialist misgovernment in a place with a hugely top-heavy military a uh, very factionalized military, lots of different power centers among, um, you know, the, 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 the flag rank. Huge amount of weapons. I mean, a Libya-style uh, small arms proliferation in a country of 30 million people. When you start to imagine what the scenarios could be in a place that hasn't had medicines for six months, toilet paper for 12 months, goes without electricity often, uh, and is one of the top 10 oil producers in the world— Basically, any scenario you sketch is going to be awful, whether it's a humanitarian disaster, whether it's an exodus, whether it's Colombian border issues, whether it's, you know, uh, an exodus into Curaçao and, and, and other parts of the Caribbean. It, either way, this is one of those issues that every time I talk with folks about Venezuela um, – Venezuelans, I mean, they always say, you know, in, in Washington, people always have it on their list to look at, but it never makes the top five issues. And there's something always more pressing until one day Venezuela is going to come up and crack that top five. And I'm, I'm very afraid that the way things are going right now with the repression uh, by the regime outside of Caracas was extremely heavy this week. The vitriol between the, the National Assembly and the president um, the situation seems, you know, tenderbox is probably an oft-used word, and I don't know how you say tenderbox in Venezuelan Spanish, but I assume we're going to have to look it up pretty soon. I'm, I'm trying to get my head around this notion of uh, Venezuela staging a, a military expedition to liberate toilet paper from Colombia. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't think it would be that well organized, but you do have this huge cross-border uh, exodus of the yeah, people. Yeah, no, no, I love the idea yeah. of the Venezuelan, the Venezuela, or the, the the Latin American toilet paper wars of 2017. Well, we had we had soccer wars, um, so yeah, you know. exactly. Well, exactly, exactly. But the, the I don't know if Max or 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 Corey, you've got other scenarios by which Venezuela cracks the top five. I think chaos in Venezuela seems likely. I think uh, repression seems like a possible outcome. Perhaps some government upheaval and government change is a possible outcome. I don't see Venezuela being in the top five for a long period of time, but perhaps you think I'm wrong on that. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't think you're wrong, but I do think that Keith makes a valuable point where Venezuelans are saying, hey, how come we don't make the top five, which is you know, kind of like Woody Allen from Take the Money and Run saying, what does it take to make the FBI's top 10 wanted list? <laughs> but I think there is a, I mean, there is a truth there, which is that uh, you can talk about all of the scenarios you want about what may unfold, but the reality is what is most likely to unfold is whatever we're not talking about, whatever is not at the top of our list, because we're usually blindsided by by the actual crisis that comes up. And it's usually not what we're preparing for, almost by definition, because if we're preparing for it, it's probably not going to happen. Whereas something like Venezuela or something else out of left field could come up and just hit us out of nowhere. You know, you bring to mind Woody Allen's Bananas also, where you you have Woody Allen sort of playing uh, at uh, being a the leader of a banana republic, uh, but nothing he has done is as egregious or ridiculous as Maduro. Um, uh, and in fact, we, I think we are living in an I era. I thought you were going to say Donald Trump, but yeah, well, Maduro the, works well, too. The, well, well, that's kind of where I was getting at. I think one of the things that the next president's going to have to come to grips with is we are on the verge of a serious crisis in satire in the world because so much is happening that is beyond the imagination of even the most imaginative satirists um, that, uh, you know, I think there's going to be a crisis. I think, uh, you know, SNL, which faced not being funny for a long time, is going to face keeping up with the news as the next big crisis. Corey, how do you feel about this critical issue? David, I think you are exactly right. Right. Um, Philip Roth wrote an essay in the 1950s about the difficulty of being an American novelist, being that America itself was so vulgar and unpredictable that it made satire difficult. And and that's blossoming right exactly now. I had the... I would have bet any amount of money that you would have said Nathaniel Hawthorne (laughs) found it almost impossible to make good jokes about the John Quincy Adams administration. No, actually, his jokes about his jokes about the John Quincy Adams administration were terrific, David. You're mistaken. (laughs) Yeah, no, read read James Traub's new book on that one. It's it's full of great zingers. Corey, North Korea scenario. Speaking of punchlines, yeah. um, the North Koreans have an unsuccessful... Right, right, where the documentary was World, uh, you, uh, Team America World Police, yes. right? <laughs> Greatest movie ever made about North Korea, without yeah. doubt. Yeah. Only no movie question. ever made about North... No, Manchurian Candidate. 
Yeah. Uh, in a minute, Max is going to start singing I'm So Ronery, and we are really going to be in for a good time. <laughs> then too. please cut us off. Please cut the Washington yeah. circuit Anytime when Max start starts singing. singing. You better cut the mic. That's, That's exactly okay. right. Okay, here's the North Korea scenario. The North Koreans test a missile. We and the Japanese have naval sh- and South Koreans have have naval vessels in the region to pick up telemetry and any pieces of the missile. They get rammed by a North Korean submarine, which then uh, makes the North Koreans anxious, and they start firing artillery into Seoul, South Korea. Max, there's no scenario the U.S. government has for a war between North Korea and South Korea where there aren't more than, I think, a million casualties because Seoul, South Korea, is so close to North Korea. And just the crossfire would be absolutely brutal. Right. Is this something that we really do have to worry about? No, I think, it, sure, we have to worry about it, but we've had to worry about it for a long time. And uh, what we've seen with the Kim dynasty is that, you know, cruel and in some ways unpredictable as they may be, they are also ultimately rational at the end of the day that they don't want to commit suicide. They're all about regime preservation. And I think that Kim Jong-un knows, just like his father and grandfather before him, that if they actually initiate a war with South Korea, it is not going to end well for him. It will end in the demise of the regime and probably the demise of the leadership as well, because, yes, they can cause a lot of damage. But at the end of the day, uh, we are going to annihilate uh, North Korea. South Korea also has extremely potent military capabilities. So they... You know, they they tend to walk up to the line and then back off, and they basically try to bluff in order to get concessions from us and then back off. But, I mean, Corey is right that there is always, 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 unfortunately, the possibility of miscalculation and something spinning out of control. But at the end of the day, I think they are the, the Kims are a little bit like Putin in that they're basically unprincipled opportunists who are basically out for themselves, whereas there are other regimes like the Iranian one or you know, Islamic State, which are motivated by ideological fanaticism, which uh, are also strategic and also, you know, calculating to some extent, but ultimately may wind up being more dangerous. Can I underscore one point that Max made, which is that an asymmetric threat to to affect the decision-making of principled opportun- unprincipled opportunists, as he said, an important asymmetric threat with them is regime change, because they may not care about their people. They may not care about a lot of things, but they sure care about remaining in power. Yeah, no question about that. And that's a more potent threat, obviously, with North Korea than with Russia, because nobody imagines we're going to march on Moscow, whereas it's not out of the realm of possibility that we we could we and the South Koreans could actually march on Pyongyang in the in the worst case scenario. Although we do face an interesting issue in the next administration, which hasn't gotten talked about very much, which is that in 2018 Russia is supposed to have an election, and it's going to be very interesting how Putin approaches that election. He's already uh, restructured the security services into that government in in a way that he's actually cribbed the, the the name for the security services from Stalin, which sent a message to everybody, consolidated their FBI, CIA, and secret police into one big state security apparatus, which many people see as a way of consolidating his power, protecting his flank, and protecting him against a potential coup. And, you know, you could have uh, Putin sort of claiming authority in in Russia in an even more egregiously autocratic way, and that would certainly present a, 
a challenge of sorts for the next president, no? Max Max just shrugged his shoulders. Kit Corey? <laughs> it was an eloquent shrug. I want no, the record no, to reflect that. It was. I, to let the record reflect an eloquent shrug, which is great on radio. Corey? I mean, I, I think I, I will say one thing about Putin. I think because you, you referred to his, daint, to his concern about, you know, his keeping his hold on power and making sure there are no challenges to him, especially with an election coming up. I think the real danger of that is not conflict within Russia, but conflict outside of Russia, because the way Putin keeps his hold on power is by getting involved in very dangerous scenarios in places like Ukraine and Syria to create this sense of danger and so that his propaganda line can be, I am defending you, the Russian people, from all these awful, evil threats out there, and I am militarily defeating these uh, Ukrainian Nazis and uh, these dangers in Syria and so forth and so on. So, you know, the, the danger is that if Putin feels that there is any threat to his rule at home, that he will engage in more military adventurism abroad. And I would I would point out that one of the things that Putin has started uh, trying to socialize the Russian people to think of as a near-term threat is nuclear war with the United States. They're doing civil defense drills again. That tells you the level of paranoia and also that it may not just be uh, Syria and Ukraine type interventions, which takes us back to my original alarmist statement about the potential for armed conflict with Russia. Although, although civil defense drills are also a way of scaring the population and making them think that the things that that Putin is doing uh, are are good things. We've got uh, six minutes here, and what I want to do in the remaining six minutes is the black swan drill, you know, where we go in and everybody says in 20 to 30 seconds each, a black swan that's on their mind that we have not talked about here. And I want to put Keith on the spot because he's actually full-time on our payroll and therefore has to live with bearing this kind of burden. This is what I do on a daily basis, right? It's black swans we haven't discussed in the last hour. Um, the one that we haven't talked about is the, uh, the Chinese economy, which I think has a lot Ooh, of... good in, one. Well, because there's a lot of ramifications, right? Because the latest numbers are starting to trend towards the lower bound, uh, officially, of what the Chinese growth targets are. Very few people believe that Chinese growth is actually 6.7%. Uh, most of the indicators suggest it's roughly half. Uh, their employment imperative, employment creation imperative is such that if the Chinese economy slows down, the knock-on effects on Chinese political stability in Beijing, um, while hard to predict, obviously are going to be ugly. And as we've already seen in the, in the Xi period, the normal outlet for problems at home or underperformance at home uh, tends to be adventurism abroad or saber rattling abroad. And so that to me is the real risk is how's the rebalance going? Uh, what's the degree of their slowdown? Does domestic demand pick up, uh, domestic consumption pick up? Does one belt, one road offer them an outlet for some of their excess capacity? Or is this going to blow up in our face? Uh, I did. You did present the possibility that if she were to come and lecture at an American university, he would have to stand up in front of the room and say, hi, my name is she and my gender pronoun is he, him. <laughs> which, there you go. Which presents a whole kind of Abbott and Costello routine <laughs> that we haven't gotten to. Well, which we haven't had since who? <laughs> who? 
Thank you. Thank you, Keith. He'll be well played, Keith. He'll be playing. I'm here till Thursday. Try the veal. Thank you very, thank you very, very much. Black Swan, um, Max. Well, I would say it would be the possibility of a fascist demagogue coming to power either in this country or in one of our close allies. And obviously, uh, the the most immediate threat is presented by Donald Trump, whose election, I think, is actually, we haven't talked about it, but the, the possibility of Trump getting elected is actually the number one national security threat that we face. Now, mercifully, it looks like that's unlikely to happen, but the percentage uh, probability is not zero. So it, it, that is a black swan. That is truly my worst nightmare scenario. Number two behind that, I think, would be if something similar were to happen in one of our close allies, like, let's say, France, if Marine Le Pen somehow won the presidency in France, or somebody of that ilk in one of the major uh, Western European countries, uh, you could see the end of the Atlantic Alliance as we know it. I think that is a a, a nightmare scenario. Or the, or the rise of the right more broadly across Europe. Um, okay, Corey, Black Swan. A Korean unification proposal, uh, either by the North or the South, that would envision American troops leaving the Korean Peninsula, coming on the in the aftermath of the Philippines uh, breaching the not breaching the treaty, but uh, ensuring there's no military cooperation between us, which would raise the pressure on Japan and also our dependence on Japan as a military base. Interesting. All right. Now I'm going to fire off a couple of places we haven't mentioned, and you can give the worry that you've got with regard to that place. Uh, and I'm just going to have to pick them off because we're going to go through them quickly. Max, Israel. Well, there's always the worry about some kind of major terrorist attack or a missile attack by Hezbollah from Lebanon, which, let's say, if the Israeli missile defenses don't work, I mean, it could hit the Israeli nuclear reactor at Dimona. It could hit, it could level downtown Tel Aviv. There's some pretty bad things could potentially happen. Corey, Afghanistan. Well, I feel like in some ways we are already seeing the horrible outcome in Afghanistan, which is the sinking of uh, un, into the mire of corruption and public dissatisfaction, the elected government, while the Taliban retakes more and more of the countryside. So I'm not sure I can come up with a worse outcome for Afghanistan than the one. No, it's true. And I think the next president of the United States is going to face the consequences of the past eight years in Afghanistan and the rise of the Taliban into power there again could be troubling for everybody. Um, Keith, India, Pakistan. Just let me put an asterisk with that. Uh, India, Pakistan, China, because as, as big as the irritant is uh, between those two anyway, um, China's uh, economic corridor with Pakistan and increased defense cooperation with Pakistan and overland part of the One Belt, One Road has been a phenomenal irritant to uh, India, uh, has really reawakened fears of encirclement and has reoriented uh, India's maritime thinkers towards the South China Sea even and Malacca. Um, so the, the three-way dance between China, India, and Pakistan uh, could materialize like we saw with Kashmir and, and the, the sort of the old things. Or you could see a situation entirely new, for instance, in uh, something as simple as the port uh, in, in uh, Ceylon 
or in the Andaman Islands, where which now has India's biggest naval command, right? So this, this, the, the contesting of the uh, Indian Ocean by a couple of major powers could be one of these flashpoints we haven't even talked about in the last hour, and that could be a major deal. Max, Central Asia. I mean, again, you could have, I mean, I suppose terrorist attack or one of those governments being toppled and uh, some kind of Islamist regime taking power. Right. Rise of fundamentalism in yeah. some Central Asian regime. Corey, I'm going to end the black swan round or this, this, this neglected country round with you with the subject that we talk about here most, Syria and Iraq. Uh, um, a black swan in Syria would be the success of the hardest line jihadists over the Assad government, the unexpected collapse of the Assad government, and a subsequent move by ISIS further into the country, the and the fight between ISIS and the most radical jihadists making Syria even worse amidst the collapse of what remains of the Assad regime. Yeah, and I think the main point there is this is going to be, no matter how much the president of the United States wants to turn their attention elsewhere, this will be an issue for the next administration that will last throughout the next administration, whether it's ISIS, whether it's Syria, whether it's Iraq, whether it's Yemen, whether it's Libya, whether it's um, uh, Iranian creep into Iraq or, 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 any, or, or, frankly, Egypt, which we haven't talked about, uh, which also remains in, in a troubling place. Uh, or Russian expansionism into many of these other places because the Russians in Egypt, the Russians in in Cyprus, the Russians in Turkey, the Russians in Syria, uh, the Russians in the Baltic represents a different kind of a threat. It doesn't have to be a nuclear war. Just them continuing to make progress like this creates pressure. And finally, I think another one that we ought to keep in mind here um, is domestic unrest in the United States, whether or not you have a demagogue arrested uh, the Baltimore Ferguson, et cetera, problems that we've been having in the country due to, you know, deep-seated economic, social uh, tensions within our own cities may pose the kind of threat uh, uh, that, that, that does cross the line uh, uh, to, to blanking out all these other things from the concerns of the president. We certainly haven't covered all of them here. I think it does give you an idea, however, that the next president of the United States, whomever that may be, is going to have their hands full on this, and we're going to have to watch very, very carefully uh, what kind of team they put together uh, to deal with these kind of national security and foreign policy issues, uh, and that is certainly a subject that we will return to in a very near future episode of the ER. In the meantime, thank you to Max. Uh, thank you to Keith. Thank you to Corey. Uh, I do want to say, by the way, that Max is going to be joining me at the Comedy Cellar on I'm Election so Night. I'm so envious. Well, you t people will be missing you there, Corey. But we here at the ER continue to go where no one has gone before. And we will spend Election Night from 730 to 10 p.m. at the Comedy Cellar with a panel, half of experts, including... Uh, regulars here like David Sanger and Ed Luce, as well as Max and some of our team. And by the way, the features editor of Jezebel, the uh, lovely and talented Joanna Rothkopf, who is definitely the smartest and funniest 
media person in the Rothkopf family, well, journalist in the Rothkopf family. Her sister is smart and funny and is also a media person. And that would be Laura Rothkopf. I have to get them both in there. But uh, in addition to that, we're going to have half a dozen comedians. Uh, and one of the jobs of this audience as they drink their way through the night watching election returns is going to be to try to tell the difference between the comedians and the experts, uh, which I, you know, I personally look forward to. I look forward to welcoming everybody there. And by the way, I'd love all of you to be able to join us there, but the thing went online on Monday and sold out within seven hours. So we'll try to find a way to podcast it out to you so you don't so you don't miss it. So go to foreignpolicy.com and we'll, we'll let you know what that looks like. So thank you to Max. Thank you to Corey. Thank you to Keith. Thank you to everybody for listening. And we look forward to joining you in a week with the next issue of the ER. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.